Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And welcome back to Liberty Librarians. This is your host, Heather Biederman, and it is a rainy Monday here in Minnesota. I hear uh, the, the sweet sounds of a fire truck in the distance honking and emergency vehicles. So you know it's that kind of day where a little bit of uh, evil lurks about, badness is in the air, a little bit of terror, and it is October, so it seems totally appropriate, doesn't it? I, I kind of have had um, scary stuff on in my mind lately. I don't know if it's just, you know, anytime you get close to Halloween, there's so many good shows and scary stuff out there. Um, I'm watching a, a show called American Horror Story 1984, and I've had a lot of fun with this one. It's been, you know, every season they do a different theme, and they, like they've done witches, and they've had haunted house, and like all sorts of weird stuff, but this season, it's you know, like the most terrifying year of all, 1984. No, it, that's not really what it's about. It seems like it's about 1980s horror movies and, and the kind of stuff that goes on in them where it's crazy and people do the dumbest things and they get killed for having sex and doing drugs. And um, it kind of turns it on its ear. So, I mean, I'm without ruining it, there's stuff where I'm thinking I, I'm really interested in seeing which direction they go with it. So if you're watching that show, send me a note because I'm obsessed right now trying to figure out which way they're going to go. And it's a really short season of that show, so it's um, going to go fast. So the other show that I've been watching and I've uh, kind of blazed through the first season is Mindhunter on Netflix. And that one's about serial killers as well. And, and the American Horror Story um, has uh, serial killers in that, um, one of which is, oh gosh, now I'm going to forget his name, um, famous, let's see, I'm going to type it up and look at it, 1984, okay, so like they have a couple of characters in there, the Night Stalker, um, whose real name is Richard Ramirez, and my brain went blank for a second there. But um, what I like about the American Horror Story um, series is every once in a while they bring different characters in and you see them again and again. And um, that's a character who's actually been on uh, the hotel season too. So it's interesting to see how they play with characters. And they, although I think it was a different actor who did it. This guy is almost like crazy handsome for it being a, a serial killer. And if you ever see Richard Ramirez, you like, if his mouth is closed, not too bad looking. He opens his mouth and you see his teeth and you go, Oh, bad 
badness. So I don't know. Something about real bad teeth is icky. But um, yeah, so Richard Ramirez, um, they are focusing on the satanic side. And if you watched that show last season, that was a big part of their theme was apocalypse. So the end of the world and having a child of Satan bring upon the end of days. So I, I love how the themes kind of go across to different areas. So yeah, I digress. Um, the show that I'm really watching, like most obsessively right now, is the Mindhunter series. And that one is on Netflix. And it's based on the book Mindhunter that was written by FBI um, Elite Serial Crime Unit, um, John E. Douglas and Mark Olshaker. So they wrote this book about um, going through the process of interviewing serial killers and trying to understand their crimes. So very interesting series so far. Um, one of the things I think is very interesting is that, um, you know, is people talk about the fact that they kind of sensationalize each of the serial killers back then. And so there was like a huge upswing of people doing copycat murders and um, trying to get famous for being a serial killer. And people talk about, was it partly because of that that made it happen so much more? Who knows? It's an interesting idea. But what I like about it is, you know, um, it's Brian Fuller and uh, that kind of beautifully written, um, amazing storyline. Um, David Fincher is uh, one of the executive producers. Um, and, you know, it's amazing, amazing writing and each of the episodes you can you get a different feel for all the characters in it and the, the process they're going through too because to sympathize with evil does it make you evil so I thought that was quite an interesting show and I've almost I just started the second season so it's going to be a little bit you know I can't blaze through it as fast you know it's this semester is really blazing, you know, everything is going so fast, and I, I really love this show, and I love the idea of it. Um, so today we're going to talk a little bit about serial killers later, and I've got some articles that I think are interesting, and we'll talk a little bit more about Mindhunter and about the characters that they talk about in it, and also, are, are, are we, you know, you don't hear about it as much, serial killers, and is it because we're desensitized or is it they're the less of them or are they still out there and I think that's a really interesting idea is that um, maybe we're not being told about things to protect our, our sanity and whatnot or to make it so there's less copycats so it's less often but um, I think that's really cool so I have a few things I want to talk about with serial killers later. And I also, like normal, have some really good intellectual freedom news for you today. And I feel very chatty. So I don't know if we'll get through all of them. But I want to make sure I have a little time for all of you. So hope you're doing really good today. It's uh, been kind of crazy this week so far. Um, 
but and it's only Monday. So I hope that you are having a good week too. So I'm going to do a little brief pause and do an ad and then we'll come back and we will go right into the news. So be right back. Please learn more about Freedomizer Radio by going to freedomizerradio.com and also Facebook us right at freedomizerradio.com. Catch you there. We can make it work, right? I'm going to do my ad. Why not? Tune in every Monday with your host, Heather Biederman, for the Liberty Librarian. Liberty Librarian, your home for intellectual freedom news and commentary. Every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Central, and 6 p.m. Eastern. All intellectual freedom fighters are always welcome at our home on Freedomizer Radio. Join us. You guys hear that song, and it's not just me because I'm. I always feel like I'm the only person here, but uh, I'm always like, do, 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 do. yeah, probably just me. You hear that enough, though, it gets in your head. I start singing it, so and I found that little piece of free stuff out there, so it made me very happy. And now that I have this little jingle, it just I always hear it, and I think I want to sing it all the time. So people are probably like avoiding me for it which is fine. They can avoid me if they want. But they're going to miss out on the song. So anyway, Intellectual Freedom News for Monday, October 21st, 2019. As always, uh, a lot of the best Intellectual Freedom News I find from the American Library Association Intellectual Freedom News website. Very good resources, and um, I only get the tip of the iceberg of it when I share it with you guys each week. I, I pick out my favorites, and I share those. So if you want more, and you like to read, uh, there's a lot more out there, so go check it out. Um, this week, I found an interesting article from the Pew Center, Pew Research Center. Um, they do a lot of great um, surveys and research into varieties of topics about um, usually internet and technology and, and society and you know what's going on in the world. So what I thought was interesting was that they came out with one that's called Americans and Digital Knowledge. So this is at the Pew Research Center. So it says, and Emily A. Vogels wrote this, who was a staff person of that, and Monica Anderson. So they wrote, a majority of U.S. adults can answer fewer than half the questions correctly on a digital knowledge quiz and many struggle with certain cybersecurity and privacy questions. So I'm going to give you a few of them and we'll just see. Um, one of the ones that they mentioned is that uh, people have problems. They don't know what phishing is or website cookies and those things. Like a lot of people, they can answer it, but there's still quite a few that can't. Um, here's the things that they can't answer. So see if you know of any of these. So they said, can you answer, if you had an example of two-factor authentication, and what is that? And only 28% of adults can identify that. One of the most important ways 
um, that experts say people can protect their personal information and sensitive accounts. So if you don't know what two-factor authentication is, you are in the 28% um, that can answer that. So if you don't know, you're, there's a lot that can't. So um, they also said about one quarter, 24% know that private browsing, so if you have your browser and you're in like incognito mode, um, that only hides browser history from other users of that computer. Well, roughly half, 49%, say they're unsure what private browsing does. And honestly, I'd rather people say they're unsure of it because um, when you feel like it's too safe, that's when usually there's a problem. And they can hack you pretty much doing anything if they want to anyway. Um, this survey had 10 questions, so not very many, but it was designed to test Americans' knowledge of a range of digital topics like cybersecurity or the business side of social media companies. So the median number of correct answers was four, four out of 10. So that means that people really don't know anything about uh, digital um, security and that sort of thing. Only 20% of adults answered seven or more questions correctly. And only 2% out of everyone got all 10 questions correct. That's pretty sad. So it is your job, my friends, to brush up on digital security, right? So how, what else can we do? So they say that educational attainment helps with the score and, and age. If um, adults with bachelor's degree or an advanced degree and those under the age of 50 tend to score higher, yeah, you know, you expect that, right? Um, and this survey was of 4,272 adults living in the United States this June. And here, here are some examples of the questions. They have the exact questions. So phishing scams can occur on social media, websites, email, or text messages. So incorrectly, correctly, or not sure. They didn't show the actual questions. They show what it was about. So I kind of was curious what the questions were. Um, so most of the people said that phishing scams can occur on social media, websites, email, or text messages. And they said, yeah. Um, but some people said no, or they don't know. Cookies allow websites to track user visits and site activity. Most people go, yeah, 63%, but 9% didn't know. 27% were not sure. What is a cookie? I would like to eat that. Probably a couple people answered that. Um, another question was, advertising is the largest source of revenue for most social media platforms. 59% answered that correctly. 32% were not sure. And the 9% incorrectly. Yeah, because social media, they make money on data and advertising. So another one. Privacy policies are contracts between websites and users about how those sites can use their data. 48% only answered that correctly. 25% incorrectly. 27%. So people don't even understand what privacy policies are. And that, you know, you really need to look at the fine print on things to know if they're abusing your, your information. And that's one of the things I get really wor worried about and worried about. Um, net neutrality, another one that's really confusing for people, describes principles, describes principle that internet service providers should treat all traffic on their networks equally. 
12% answered it incorrectly, 45% answered it correctly, and 42% said not sure. So about half, half and half, people don't have any idea. Um, HTTPS, HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash in a URL means that the encryption entered into the site is encrypted. And the S stands for secure. So 15% um, said incorrectly, 38% said correctly, and 53% said not sure. WhatsApp and Instagram are both owned by Facebook. 22% incorrectly, 29% correctly, 49% not sure. Can identify example of true two-factor authentication set of images. So they got 55% were incorrect, 28% correct, 17% not sure. Private browsing mode only prevents someone from using the same computer from seeing one's online activities. Um, and only 24% got that correctly. And I'm just going to give you a hint. Private is only on the same computer. You know what? Like somebody else can like figure out if they're on your network or your server. They can figure out like what you're looking at. They can figure out by the website, the web address. They may not be able to pinpoint if it was you, but they can figure out pretty close it was you. So if you're just using an incognito mode, it's not going to be enough. And they can correctly identify a picture of Jack Dorsey. 7, 15, 77. That's one. I'm just going to say what? <laughs> so, yes. Um, that was a really weird one. That's the one that threw everyone. Jack Dorsey. Okay, I'm going to look up Jack Dorsey. Because I feel dumb. Maybe I would have gotten this all wrong, too. What kind of question is that? Oh, he's the CEO of Twitter. Why don't I know him? Yeah, he looks familiar. CEO of Twitter. Man, he's got a great beard. He kind of looks like he's a famous movie star, you know? Like, so there you go. For those of you who would have gotten that wrong, probably including myself, CEO of Square and CEO of Twitter, co-founder and CEO of Twitter, yeah, you know what? I think part of my dumbness is I don't use Twitter really. I have a Twitter account I never use, and I mostly have used Facebook and a little Instagram and Reddit, that sort of stuff. But not really much of Twitter. You know, I may I may switch to it down down the road, but yeah. So I guess that's why I don't know that CEO, and I guess I don't feel bad because 77% weren't sure, and I would have been not sure either. So Americans are more knowledgeable about certain digitally focused topics than others. You know, if you use it all the time and you've screwed up, um, you know, sometimes you'll have your IT guys kind of beat it into your head, like, make sure you do this, don't share your passwords, don't write it down on a post-it note and put it on your computer, that kind of stuff, right? So... People still screw it up and talk about um, some of the answers of this, um, like advertising is the largest source of revenue and um, the privacy policy is important. But there, the things that were more confusing is only three in 10 adults answered that UR with HTTPS means information internet site is encrypted. Um, and the two-factor authentication was confusing to people. 
So I think if you're not really sure about um, browsing and like how to protect your privacy, I mean, I always advocate for getting a VPN and make sure that you have pop-up blockers installed and do your best to like protect yourself from outside attacks. Um, in the in the day, it used to be like make sure you have antivirus, and a lot of computers come with it. But um, I always say every every year or so look through and see if there's a better option for antivirus because some companies change their terms of service and what they do, and some are more trustworthy than others. So make sure you do a little investigation on that as well. And um, I think it's important. What was interesting to me was that so many people, and I assume people know a lot because we all are online all the time, right? But, like, really, we don't know anything. And I think that's kind of bothered me a little bit. Um, younger adults, they say, score higher than older adults across digital knowledge questions. But that doesn't mean everyone's perfect. So I just think... Take, take time and understand, you know, what these terminologies mean for um, doing your best to understand privacy issues. Okay, so speaking of the Internet, I found a really good one. It's a real short article. I thought it was interesting because I have a friend who works in uh, city government, and um, the one I was looking at is there's an island town, and they're building a public broadband network. This is on a website called GeekWire, which I, I looked around at it. It's got some interesting articles. And they're hoping that it's a model for bridging the digital divide. And the digital divide is like the haves and the have-nots. So uh, rich people, and you think like even sort of upper middle class people, we just take for granted that um, there's going to be internet. There's going to be cell phone service. I will have an electronic tool so I can do all my work wherever I am. Uh, a lot of people don't have that. Some areas don't even have internet. And it's uh, the kind of thing that can make it so you go from be between having um, opportunities to no opportunities. So to know that there are options for towns um, to make sure that their community has uh that you know viable internet that's quality um is kind of interesting and amazing so the one i saw was about um it's anacortes washington is a picturesque town on fidalgo fidalgo island fidalgo island 90 minutes north of seattle so it's on an island right best known for its marina and it's a popular spot for travelers to stop on their way to San Juan Island. But there's something else special about this place. It's a municipal government, which represents a population of about 15,000 people, and it is about to become a high-speed Internet provider. So in a few weeks, there are a bunch of cities around the country dissatisfied with private sector. You know, and the private sector has been throttling, and it feels like nobody can do anything about it. We're at the, the whims of private businesses. So while I, I really I love competition, and actually I feel like there's more competition so it could breed even better quality and more honesty from the private sector. So I think this is a really great way to go if the community is into it. And um, what they're doing is um, they're making municipal broadband. 
and they, because they say the Internet is vital to daily life as electricity or clean water. And they want to see it right in the same way as a, like a community service. So what they're going to do, and other municipal broadband pioneers, they'll provide a test case. And if it's successful, it could be a model for bridging a widening digital divide between urban and rural communities. And because they're on an island, they're about as rural as they can get. They're far out there. So, and I'm imagining because they're on an island, it's the expense of having uh, private companies do it is probably astronomical compared to what it could be like on land. So, um, so it was no small challenge, they said. Um, the judging from Seattle's repeated attempts, they wanted to do it so bad. And then um, they partnered with Cincinnati-based uh, Gigabit Squared. They wanted to bring Gigabit Internet to thousands of residents, and this fell apart in 2013 after the company failed to raise enough money to implement a high-speed Internet network during the city's dormant dark fiber network, using the city's dor- dormant dark fiber network. So... Further progress stalled since 2015 when Seattle City Council voted down a $5 million proposal to begin developing a municipal broadband network. So big money because lots of people, right? So these officials in Anacorts um, have spent the last few years researching how to become an internet provider, creating a plan, building the infrastructure necessary. So this month, city plans to pilot service in three areas. So if all goes well, they'll expand the service area with the goal of providing internet to the entire community by 2023. So that's pretty, um, it's a lofty goal, if you ask me. It's kind of amazing sounding. I'm curious. I mean, I want to see somebody succeed in doing this. And I'd like to see it not just be city governments. I'd like to see, like, small um, non-government communities come together. Like, can you imagine, like, something like commune where people like together have their own internet and it's run by them like how amazing would that be um so it says the internet of things is coming and although i do not know exactly we really don't even know the vaguely what the world will look like in 2050 it's going to require high-speed connectivity said jim limberg the manager of anacourt's broadband project so what is this going to cost right the service will cost residential customers $39 a month for 100 megabit per second service. Wow. And $69 for gigabit speeds. Businesses will pay $89 or $149 per month for those speeds. The prices are comparable, comparable to new service that Fort Collins, Colorado is rolling out. Voters in the mountain town approved the municipal broadband plan despite an opposition campaign from cable giants. Of course, because they're going to lose money. So that's something to keep an eye on. I think um, small communities coming together to make their own internet and probably better than what a lot of private companies could provide for them. I think that could be a feature of um, making sure that communities have access to good quality data and have their own digital divide bridged. And, And hopefully make it so schools can have it too. So we'll see. I think that could be like the future of something for small communities that we'll see happen more and more often. Okay. I'm going to take a sip. Here's the one that kind of pissed me off. I'm going to like just lay it out for you. Um, this is from Wired Magazine. It's called The Digital Ethics of Using Facial Recognition in Schools. Yeah. 
and the story in this is what made me so angry. Um, there's a lot of school districts that are using cameras and software to prevent attacks. People are so afraid of, uh, you know, gunmen coming into school or somebody like planting bombs or somebody like kidnapping children that they have gone um, to high tech systems to um, protect their children at the cost of privacy for children. And um, there's a potential that um, who's watching this? Like they could abuse it. There could be abuses. It's Big Brother watching you all the time when you're in high school. How would you like that? Or if you had it at work, would you enjoy that? Is the, the feeling of safety worth it? That's what I, I wonder. So here's the story that they gave. I'm going to read it, and it's only a couple paragraphs, so I think it's worth reading. It says, on a steamy evening in May, 9,000 people filled Stingaree Stadium at Texas City High School for graduation night. A rainstorm delayed ceremonies by half an hour, but the school district's facial recognition system didn't miss a beat. Cameras positioned along the fence line allowed allegory. Oh, God. Um, they're checking every face. I can't talk. Um, at, as the stadium filled with families, security staff in the press box received a notification that the system had spotted someone on their watch list. It was a boy who had been expelled from the district and sent to a county disciplinary school, whose pupils are barred from the district rules for visiting other campuses. So less than 30 seconds after the boy sat down, a sheriff's deputy asked for his name. When he replied, he was escorted from the stadium and missed his sister's graduation. Yep. Said, Mama was upset, but that's the rules, says Mike Matranga, executive director of security at Texas City Independent School District on the shore of Galveston Bay, south of Houston. Honestly, really? Okay. So they... Uh, probably relate the incident to show how facial recognition can make schools safer. So you kept a school child from getting to see a sister graduate from high school. They feel so much safer. <sighs> they sigh. Okay. And they're thrust into a debate, the children of all these schools, an AI-enhanced surveillance. So there are eight public school systems identified by Wired Magazine from rural areas to giant urban districts that have moved to install facial recognition systems in the past year. Yes, this is happening in schools around the country. The technology watched over thousands of students returning to school in recent weeks, continually checking faces against watch lists compiled by school officials and law enforcement. Administrators say facial recognition systems are important tools to respond to or even prevent major incidents such as shootings, but the systems are also being used to enforce school rules or simply as a convenient way to monitor students. It's kind of lazy um, and expensive considering like, you could use your eyeballs to do this. So this spring, staff at the Putnam City Schools in Oklahoma needed to check whether a student reported as having run away from home was actually at school. Rather than risk ask teachers, they um, tap facial recognition cameras to quickly spot the student. They said it's a very, very efficient way of monitoring your group of people. And this is from, um, they bought surveillance software called Better Tomorrow, which should be your first warning that there's something wrong with it. Because doesn't that seem like a dystopian name of a company that's going to be like, 
stealing your soul somehow. So the company is actually called AnyVision. It's an Israeli startup that media reports in home countries say supplies Israeli army checkpoints at the West Bank. So we're using military technology to watch our children. Isn't that great? But not everyone likes the idea of this facial recognition in schools. And last year, parents in Lockport, New York, protested plans by school officials to install $1.4 million in facial recognition systems, saying it was inappropriate to use such potentially intrusive technology in children. Hear, hear. The moment that they turn those cameras on, every student, including my daughter, is being surveilled by a system that can track her whereabouts and their associations. Um, says Jim Schultz, a parent of Lockport Jr. The district doesn't intend to watch students. Rather, officials say they want to keep out unwelcome visitors, including suspended students and local sex offenders. So why are they watching it in the building then? You know, why aren't they just watching outside the building? So parent protests reported by Lockport Journal caught the attention of the New York Civil Liberties Union, which raised concerns about the accuracy of facial recognition algorithms algorithms. I used to say words on darker skin tones. So yes, there's some racism inherent in the programs. So the NYCLU noted that the district planned to include suspended students who were disproportionately black on its watch. Similar worries have helped elevate cities, including Francisco and Oakland, ban their public agencies from facial recognition. Um, and it's they're hoping the New York State Education Department ordered Lockport to testing of the system. Um, there's an increasing trend of surveillance and security in U.S. schools, despite lack of firm evidence that more technology makes kids safer. I mean, think about, you know, you go to the airport and they put you through the rigmarole of searching everything and scanning you, and yet somehow planes still go down. There's still terror, like terrorism still exists. And if somebody really wants to get around a system, they will. So spending this much actually seems to be counterproductive. But um, they say that high profile school shootings drive intensifying surveillance. So in the burden falling heaviest on students of color and basically people are just making money off of people's paranoia and fear and it's an abuse and it's just a way to take away more rights from people and your freedoms go out the window so companies are selling facial recognition systems they see schools as a growing market so anytime there's like a, a school that has a um, like there's a murder of 14 students and three staff members at marjorie stoneman douglas high school in parkland florida last year then um, interests um, go way up People are like, oh, we got to protect the kids. How do we do that? We'll throw a bunch of money at the problem, and we won't even try to solve the problem. We'll just say, look, there's no problem because we have technology that should prevent it, except for the fact that people can hide from cameras. They can know where the cameras are. They can get around it. So good luck with that. Um, it's just feeding on our fear and taking away rights from the good kids that really don't deserve this. So the AnyVision, that company that's making this software, one of the softwares is, says technology is installed at hundreds of sites worldwide. 
They say, our technology never catalogs or retains records of individual screens. So how does it learn? How, you know, really? How does it learn? AnyVision remains committed to operating under the highest level of privacy and ethical standards. I, I feel like when they work for a company like this and they want to have every edge, I don't totally believe that. So Parkland shooting prompted another tech firm called Real Networks to offer its facial recognition softwares to school for free. So they're, they're kind of like doing, going the nonprofit route and making money in different ways. So they said districts representing over a thousand schools have expressed interest. And dozens of schools are already using the technology to automatically open gates for parents or staff or watch for persons of interest, such as parents subject to court orders and custody disputes. It works with uh, districts. It works with short best practice guide on facial recognition in schools, and it discusses privacy and transparency. But the company does not monitor how schools are using its technology. So this is one of the problems I have with it, is that um, they can abuse it in the spring um, three Panasonic engineers went from Houston and Japan to West Platte, Missouri, 30 miles from Kansas City, and they installed a $200,000 camera system in order to, um, to watch over its, its over 600 students. And they had licenses to equip 13 cameras. Um, the cameras are mostly to guard entrances and feed footage to the school's IT office <laughs> and law enforcement, and they both receive alerts when the system identifies someone in the district's watch list. And this footage is stored by default for a month. So supposedly it wipes it out. And then um, the, there's a security company in Oklahoma City that oversaw the installation. So it's a very, very efficient way of monitoring a group of people. And it's expensive. Like schools are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars to have this kind of technology. And facial recognition, um, Anytime there's a local tragedy, it happens, you know, so um, people want to make sure that their, their children are protected, the buildings are protected, resources, and they're afraid. And, and everyone has a right to be afraid, but I think people are um, preying on this insecurity that people have. So they have military veterans. Doesn't this, like, make you just go, this is wrong? You know, like if we're hiring military to develop a system of watching our students, um, doesn't that make you feel uncomfortable? Like, how would you feel if they put that at your work and people were watching you all the time? I mean, that's what it's leading to. You know it. They start with the kids and go, well, this made them safe. Wouldn't you want it at your work, too, so you'd be safe? And then, you know, you might as well have it on your house because people could break into your house at any time. And you know what? It probably works that way part of the time. But really, they're using it to watch you all the time. And that means they could, like, government could go in. They could just, like, look at the schools. That kid, you know, he said something anti-government on the on his, like, Facebook page, you know, we got to keep an eye on him. And you know what? It could down the road lead to some sort of Nazi kind of stuff where they like take out people who disagree a little too loudly. So well, let's not go down that road, shall we? It just feels like I, I know we want our kids to be safe. I know it. 
and that people like even if you have this like somebody could be showing up with they're heavily armed and you can't prepare for that kind of stuff and it's it's they're making it seem like we're going to war in schools and maybe we are maybe I'm naive about it but I think that it's going to lead to things later on that we can't go away from and we're spending so much money on this and I just think about you know, they spend so much money on security, they spend so much on the buildings and football fields, but then they're letting go librarians. They're letting, like, they'll have one 20% librarian and running, like, you know, five schools, and um, they'll have the rest run by, um, you know, like, media aides, and it's just crazy like they won't you know they they don't focus on education actually they focus on um, spending money and keeping people in basically prison and who do you want to go to school nowadays if it's prison you're in prison for that amount of time no wonder kids would even want to drop out of school terrible so i i digress it's just it's so upsetting to me when i saw that and you know it's you know, if it does what it does, I can see why people like it. If if it could keep sex offenders out and keep people from um, hopefully hurting students, I get it. But you could just have people with eyeballs watching, you know, the hallways, looking around, and they could be just as effective for far less money. And maybe we could spend more on getting good materials and having um, the digital divide um, taken care of in systems. So. Um, wow. Yeah, this story is kind of interesting. You know, everyone, it, they got really heated. They call each other a-holes and whatnot. Um, and they say unstable, rational people. They're going to they'll be on a watch list. And they said, you know, there's creeping authoritarianism. Um, doing this without notifying me is not acceptable, and I should have a right to challenge it. So if you're put on a watch list, shouldn't you know that you're on a watch list? You know, by the way, you can't go to the high school. Maybe they should tell you, you know, um, like the kid who couldn't go to his sister's graduation. Um, shouldn't there also be like, hey, um, I know I have this situation, but I'd like to see my sister graduate. And I promise I will be on best behavior. My mother will be there and she will beat the crap out of me if I do not be on my best behavior and have have situations where you can work with it. Um, why are people, some people banned? Is it for legitimate reasons or is it because somebody had a disagreement? It could be any reason. And a lot of parents aren't educated and may feel scared, you know, like if they don't like a parent because they stick up for their kids and they say, you're threatening me and ban the parent who may have no real reason to be banned. So I mean, what what is what are they what system is there in place to make sure things are fair? And I, I feel like there's a lot of uh, possibility for abuse in this. So let's see, how do I want to end this? It keeps going on and on. They keep talking about the attacks and artificial intelligence has come so far, but it's not perfect. And I think one of the main reasons that they keep saying is that because um, it uh, it's can be abused, it can be um, 
not totally effective yet. The technology hasn't gone far enough that it sometimes doesn't see black people correctly. So it may identify the wrong black person as a person on their list. And that is not good. And, um, do, where does the money come from? Are parents paying for this? Is it Does it make any sense that they keep doing it? So there you have it. Facial recognition is now in high schools, and, and they'll probably end up being in elementary schools and junior highs across the country, and it's a matter of time before it'll be used in, you know, other education settings like colleges and universities, and then next will be your business sector, and then your home. So pretty soon Big Brother will be everywhere. What are you going to do about it? So I hope that you you all think about you know, what, what we can do, what we could do to make this better. So I'm going to go to one last article. It's a short one. I thought that one made me mad. Didn't it make you mad? Um, so there's one, we've talked about Chrome in the past. So for the, the Android has uh, a new uh, site isolation. Um, so it's new protections preventing password and data theft. So I've talked about how sometimes cell phones can be not the safest way to uh, have your information, but there Google is trying to increase the rewards it pays for hacks. So, you know, they, one of the things with Google is they pay hackers to like, can you break into our site and show us that you can. And if they can, then uh, they pay them and then hopefully learn how to stop the vulnerability and make it so they're stronger. Um, so they use this program to include bugs in Blink, and that's the core software that Chrome uses to render HTML and other resources, um, and it allows similar types of cross-site data theft. So they've been working to make a fortress of solitude. So the release of Chrome 77, which has uh, strengthened an existing protection known as site isolation, and the Google developers added site isolation in July 2018. It was a highly ambitious engineering feat that required major architectural changes to the way the browser worked under the hood. And by the way, this uh, is an Ars Technica. So if you want to know more, go to that website. Uh, to learn more about this Chrome um, improvement, so Chrome previously mixed JavaScript and other content from two more open sites into a single process. But what this did was it made, um, like it opened for an attacker website um, accessing sensitive data associated with another website's vulnerabilities known as Spectre and Meltdown, which are great names. Like those hackers always come up with the best names for every way to get into everything and all the problems out there. So, what site isolation limits each blink renderer process to contents from a single site. So even a malicious site is able to bypass specter and meltdown mitigations. Processor makers have added to their chips in the last 20 months. Attacking websites won't be able to access any data that's worth stealing. So yay, that's one of the good things that Google has done. So they're, they're actually putting their money where their mouth is. They say they're going to make things a little bit more secure and they've actually been trying to. So good on them. Um, Chrome 77 site isolation helps protect many types of sensitive data from compromised render processes, such as authentication. So your cookies and stored passwords can only be accessed by processes locked to the corresponding site. Network data. 
So like the site isolation uses cross-origin read blocking to filter sensitive data types such as HTML, XML, JSON, and PDF uh, from a process, even if that process tries to lie to Chrome's network stack about its origin. So there, resources are labeled with cross-origin resource policy header are also protected. So yay, stored data and permissions. Um, it renderer processes can only access stored data, like local storage, or permissions, like a microphone, based on the process site lock. And cross-origin messaging. Chrome's browser process can verify the source origin of post messaging and broadcast channel messages, preventing the renderer processes from lying about who sent the message. So now that the rollout's done, Google is tweaking its bug bounty program to create incentives for researchers to find and privately report bugs in new protection. So it's remained unavailable for iOS and Android versions of Chrome so far, but that's going to change so slowly, but it's going to. And they say they're going to be putting more and more of the processes into this kind of site isolation. So we'll have to see. And it's... Uh, going to be a password triggered site isolation has been enabled for 99% of Android devices running Chrome 77 and having at least two gigabytes of RAM. Chrome is holding back the 1% of installations to monitor and improve performance. Android users can enable site isolation for all websites by accessing a URL on the Chrome site. Google that. But Thursday, Post warns that the move will come at a performance cost that may not be acceptable for many people. So you may want to wait. I'm not an early adopter on stuff like that because sometimes it breaks things or they can find a hole in it right away. But I think it sounds very promising. Yay, Google for trying. And then Apple's longstanding requirements Chrome for iOS relies on the WebKit engine, which doesn't support the out of process iframes or other elements of site isolation. So you won't see it on iOS for a while. So at the end of the regular news. I'm going to take a little break, and then I will come back, and we're going to talk about serial killers if you are ready. So I will be right back. Imagine standing barefoot on cushy grass while you use a professional-grade knife to deftly chop fresh vegetables on your organic bamboo cutting board. The team at MyZestiness.com wants to help your family enjoy home cooking like this more often. They do this by offering fun and functional tools that make your time in the kitchen more efficient and enjoyable. MyZestiness.com offers the finest and most interesting kitchen goods and accessories, all backed by their world-class customer service team. Check out their ever-expanding inventory today. Visit MyZestiness.com. That's zesty like spicy, nest like home. MyZestiness.com. Okay, and we're back. Now, I was talking earlier about watching the Mind Hunter series, and it's really pretty interesting. Um, what's it's based on the Mind Hunter book, um, and it has you know your Holden Ford and uh, 
see. What's his name? Bill Tench. Bill. And then Dr. Wendy Carr. Some of my favorite characters. And they're fun and interesting. And I know that uh, while this is based on reality, there's a lot of uh, fantasy and uh, drama posted into this uh, series. So um, you you always got to have a grain of salt because they had to change some of the things to make it a little more exciting. But a lot of it is based on the truth and stories that were in the book. So it's not totally off base, right? So I just want to talk real briefly about it. Um, like serial killers on the show, like Charles Manson and David Berkowitz and, and like serial killers like that. And also the, the main FBI characters like Holden Ford is based on uh, Johnny Douglas who wrote the book um, Mindhunter inside the FBI's elite serial crime unit. So, you know, he's uh, no stranger to Hollywood. He served as a main inspiration for Jack Crawford in the novels Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs, and as well as Brian Fuller's take on Will Graham in the TV show Hannibal, which, by the way, if you like Hannibal, I think you really like Mindhunter, because the really great character introspection and... uh, you know, a little bit about the murders, you get to see inside the action of it, but then you get to pick apart the why. Why are people like this? And I think that's what's so interesting to me, too, is that there's a lot that you don't understand about them and that maybe you shouldn't, maybe you never will, but kind of cool. Um, so this character, the Holden Ford, um, is based on that Douglas, and Douglas redefined murder investigations thanks to information from his interviews with David Berkowitz, John Wayne Gacy, Charles Manson, Richard Speck, Edward Kemp, Edmund Kemper, Ed Kemper, because, you know, Edmund was the name his mother gave him. Ed was his name. You know, that guy, he's really interesting and lovable in a lot of ways until you how terrifying and manipulative he is and you get closer and closer to that and you go oh this is how someone can survive so long and be so personable yet terrible and terrifying so they also talk about um, Holt McCallany is um, a gruff FBI agent and real life counterpart are less direct than those between Ford and Douglas but they're still there so Tench, Bill Tench um, was inspired heavily by Robert K. Ressler, a Chicago-born FBI agent who joined the Bureau in 1970. So this Ressler was also part of the Behavioral Sciences Unit in the 70s and is credited with coining the term serial killer. So Ressler interviewed serial killers in the 80s and developed the nation's first computer database of unsolved crimes, which helped capture those who crossed state lines. So, interesting. And then um, Dr. Wendy Carr, um, who's played by, um, what's her name? Anna Torv. Anna Torv was amazing in uh, one of my favorite all-time shows, Fringe. So if you've ever seen that, I love her. She's great. She's Australian. She's amazing. Um, so Anna Torv's uh, psychologist character in this real-life counterpart is Dr. Ann Wolbert Burgess. And I thought it was really interesting because in the show they um, – kind of skirt around the fact that she's a woman in this time where um, being a lesbian is something that you hide, especially if you want to succeed in uh, the FBI. And the real person that she's based on is 
Dr. Ann Burgess, Wolbert Burgess, and um, who is not a lesbian in real life. And um, her her son had watched the series and then called her and go, uh, Mom, is there something you want to tell me? And she's like, no, it's there's some fictionalized stuff to make it more interesting and to talk about the time of and uh, being female. And, you know, it's there's a lot of uh, leeway that they give. And obviously it's uh, fictionalized for, for the interest. So this they talk about different characters that are in there. Um, that they're based on real people, but there's some of them that are inspired and they want to have as a, a counterpoint uh, in actual history. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And they talked about the serial killers in there, like uh, Ed Kemper, um, Monty Ralph Rizzo, oh, uh, Jerry Brudos, um, Richard Speck. Is really great. I mean, like the actors they got are just great because they're a little bit unknown, but they look so close to like these people that it's just crazy. And um, there's uh, Elmer Wayne Henley Jr., which um, I haven't seen it yet because it's the fourth episode, but they talk about uh, convicted of life terms, Houston mass murders, and you get to see um, Charles Manson and, you know, like, they seem like famous people, which, is this what it should be? Is this why it got so out of control, you know? And then, like, Manson, the, the FBI agent, they say is starstruck, going so far as to give Manson his sunglasses, which might seem unrealistic until you consider um Douglas's own fascination with the man, as recounted in his book, he had been forced to live by his wits his entire life, so he'd become extremely adept at sizing up people he met, quickly determining what they could do for him. He would have been excellent in my unit of assessing an individual's psychological strengths and weaknesses and strategizing how to get a killer we were hunting. So he really admired Charles Manson, which I think is something to show that over time, the author really got so into uh, the interviews and uh, kind of respected them. And I think that might have damaged him in a lot of ways that they show later on in the series, too, that there are things that happen to you when you're around abnormal psychology people like this. So is it amazing to like get to understand the stories? A little terrifying? Yes. Um, is it healthy for you in the long run? Probably not. Every single character uh, suffered so far from the first season, and but their 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 claim to fame is talking to people who were murderers. So, what does that say about our society? What our values are? Hmm. They're a little murdery. So they talk um, to Manson. And they also talked to Tex Watson, who um, helped, who, who, you know, like Charles Manson actually didn't get convicted for any murders he did himself. He convinced people to do it for him. So he's just a special kind of um, unique individual who did terrible things and made other people do much more terrible things. And, and yet people love him to this day. We still talk about him. He's very famous. So 
what I was thinking about when I've been watching this show is there's amazing characters and amazing stories. Um, like some of the little murders that they talk about um, and where you go, oh, or the ones that are thwarted. And it's amazing to see the potential for murderer is everywhere. What what gets me paranoid is there's a lot of little things like they have um, Tench's son, his little kid. Is he going to be a, a serial killer when he grows up? I mean, you see some of these signs and they talk about their backgrounds and their, their childhood. And you go, wait, are they alluding that this person could be? Or, you know, is it just random is it like a bunch of things that happen to you is it your nature or nurture um they talk about um people hurt small animals and they work their way up to humans and there's a little scene oh it doesn't really do the plot too much but whereas um she's feeding this little cat never sees a cat but then you start to wonder did the cat die was it killed by a kid who's becoming a serial killer. Um, what is she surrounded? Is she in danger? And I think the thing that made me wonder if she's in danger is she snuck down to do her laundry and she's wearing a long shirt, no pants. And you just go, Oh honey, what are you doing? Is it because we're so jaded now that maybe we, we see things differently? Like that's not a safe situation. You don't want to be going down to your, apartment buildings basement by yourself half naked is this a bad idea probably but you know I even think back when I was a kid and it was a much more innocent time right were we like we we didn't have cell phones we'd go for bike rides all over town when we were little kids and nobody would know where we are and we'd just say Okay, I'll be home by five, you know, get ready for dinner. So is it because we're so tethered now? Are we safer? And that's that's the thing I was wondering about. Because I started thinking, it just seemed like we know who they are. We know who the serial killers were in the 80s. They're big news. Everyone was fascinated. And so I found this article, and actually two articles in, in the UK about United States serial killers. I thought that was interesting. One was in BBC News, and one was in The Guardian. And it talked about 1979, um, Peter Vronsky um, was fascinated with serial killers. And when he was 23 in 1979, he was in New York City for work. And he's waiting for a elevator, which is stalled on the fourth floor of the Travel Inn Motor Hotel. He shot a dirty look at the man who bumped his shoulder as he left the elevator. What I, he was just kind of saw through me. And he looked like a guy in a daze, as if I wasn't there. So next morning, um, he read about a horrific double murder and mutilation that had taken place at the hotel pre- the previous day. So he's seeing the coverage in the trial of Richard Cottingham and he saw the butcher of Times Square and the man in the lift where this was the same guy. He recognized him immediately. So he wondered, like, where do monsters come from? Like, how, how does this happen? And this is 
the, pretty much the gist of the whole Mind Hunter series is like what what causes it. So during the serial killing peak in North America, there's a three decade period where it was just like out of control from the 60s to the 80s where it peaked, um, where it saw it grow and grow and grow. There were at least 200 such murderers, 200 running around the country killing people. And there's a downward trend over the next two decades. So they said that the rise in the serial killings in that era, at the time when the likes of Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, had several roots. So the, that period coincided with a general increase in violent crime in the U.S. and Canada. And well, they show the Golden State Killer, who is an interesting story. Society at the time was un- undergoing major changes. So people in the 60s, they were moving more. They're like, you know, people didn't live in the same town their whole life. They were done with it. They would move across the country and people didn't know their neighbors as much. And people hitchhiked. They would just run around and it was easier for killers to find vulnerable victims. And that's, that's a big part of it is just um, not knowing your surroundings, not knowing anyone and um, trusting people you shouldn't be. So crime tracking highways and lead exposure. It's created an environment that was ideal for certain killers to prey on victims. And crime detection also lagged behind. Police lacked large-scale computerized databases and investigative databanks that could help them. So, like today, um, we have DNA, and it wasn't used until the mid-1980s for forensic purposes, making it harder to track killers. So we're starting to see a lot of um, unsolved cases now are being um, leading to the arrest of people who killed someone back in the 70s and 80s, like um, the Golden State Killer, who's now 72, Joseph D'Angelo. And he, um, you know, I think he's getting old enough that I think he's just like, yep, I did these. They caught him finally, and now he's, like, telling where the bodies were. So the good thing about it is actually once you catch them and they, they go along with it, you go, yep, you finally caught me, that maybe they can, you know, let some of these souls rest you know they finally will have families may still be around that will remember so serial killer was only coined in the early 1980s so people didn't know that there was somebody that would go around and kill multiple people um the offenders had a head start people didn't know and then um the media and public fascination with serial murder was having a snowball effect so now there's an interstate highway system, and it gave killers a wider geography to roam and kill. So they can get out further and come back. Um, and there's an overall increase in crime and lead exposure from petrol. <laughs> so there's pollution. People were unhappy. It was a dark time. So they also have another hypothesis. They believe the rise of the North American serial killer in the late 20th century can be traced to the ravages of World War II, which lasted from 1939 to 1945, and the children of men returning from battlefields in Europe and the Pacific. So he wrote a book called Sons of Cain, A History of Serial Killers, which you should check out. Searching for reasons, um, there's so many serial killers over three decades. Vronsky looked at the killers and their childhoods, and they said that serial killers come from among us. They come out of our society. And they're not aliens. They are children who grew up to become these serial offenders. 
children that are, that are around today, some of them will become serial killers. And it's you have such a violent time in society that the children of violence, um, they react weirdly to violence. And I see it time and time again that a lot of serial killers did have violent childhoods or were you know, beaten or um, emotionally abused and are sexually abused, but not always. So I don't think this is always the truth, but I do think he is, um, there is um, cumulative effect that I think it is true. And um, there's psychological impact of global conflict. And, um, and I wonder, don't you just wonder you know, right now, I feel like we're in this time where people don't talk and they don't work with what stresses are going on. And we fight and we have infighting and there's terror and people are having, uh, like, the, the the gunman checks at school or they do the fake bullets at staff and faculty and children are terrified all the time. Or do we live in a world now that's going to make it so there's more people later on that do this? I mean, it seems like it's all entirely possible. So I, I worry about that. And war is always vicious and primitive. So is it going to be children of soldiers? Is it going to be that we live in communities where we see violence in front of us and then it it grows from there? I mean, you just wonder. Um, they said uh, the, a lot of the parents, uh, the killers, most of them did not speak about their fathers, but those that did often referred them coming back from the war in a traumatized state. So it may have affected them. And they said there's a less pronounced but noticeable increase in serial killings from 1935 to 1950 following World War One, And then he hopes that sociologists and criminologists look at more closely at the war experiences of the fathers of these killers and their fraternal relationships. So father-son relationship, most likely. Specifically, the Pulp Fiction and True Crime magazines that were widely sold across North America with their covers often depicted violent, sexualized imagery. So at the core of this trauma the family breakdown, then there's also a cultural scripting of a fantasy that they later acted out. The major upheaval in society. There are a lot of broken families and people that came from it and transients and mobility and people don't feel like they belong and they want things and they can't have them. So they talk about their similar trends in this century, their social upheaval, financial meltdown of 2008, wars and terrorism. And they think that this time that we live in might spur a similar phenomenon. So this makes me think of the movie It. You know, it's like every 25 years or so, just about every horror movie, it's really good and worth its salt, that there's an upsurgence of murder and maybe serial killers, maybe evil in the world, but whatever you call it, that it keeps coming back. Maybe it's in our subconscious that we, we just know it's coming. I think we're almost that time, you know, if we haven't already. It seems like we're, we're getting pretty close to it. 
So it says we're living in the throes of equally tumultuous and polarizing time that give way to a golden age of the serial killer. But I think that the author who's talking about this, um, Arndt Feld, Field, said that I think he wants it because there's, you know, there's something amazing and exciting about, you know, like Hannibal Lecter and, you know, serial killers, that, especially intelligent ones that have planning and, you know, it's they almost, the authors almost respect that because it's a great story, but nobody wants to be around that. So I'm not entirely sure why that switch gets thrown, why people turn that way, but they say there's no, according to the FBI, and I'm going to read this, that there is no single identifiable cause or factor that leads to the development of a serial killer. Rather, there are a multitude of factors that contribute to the development. The most significant factor is a serial killer's personal decision in pursuing to in choosing to pursue their crimes. The FBI estimates that less than one percent of all murders in a given year are committed by serial killers. So it's just it's very rare. Murder happens, but like that kind of planning, it's it's it just doesn't happen very often. So it's a lot of things coming together to make it happen. Um, and it's too, even too early to write off old-fashioned biblical evil or whatever that means, according to Bronski. But I think that, um, I don't know if I believe in evil in that way, but, you know, I think people like to believe that, you know, there's nothing we could do, and it's because something was sent to punish and whatnot. And if you're good and you like pray and you try your best to be a good person, then nothing will happen to you. And I think that's punk too. I think that it could happen to anyone. You can be in the wrong place at the right time. And um, you can prevent a lot of it by being aware and not, you know, making sure you don't um, take weird risks. But somebody does terrible things, sometimes it's going to just be your turn. So anyway, it made me think. There was also an article that said, um, were American serial killers a dying breed? And they thought there was less and less of them after the, the 80s. And they talked about the Golden State Killer being arrested and he's 72 years old. And um, investigators created a fake profile on a popular genealogy website called GD Match and uploaded genetic data from well-preserved crime scene DNA sample. And what was interesting is the website website led them to di several distant relatives of the suspect. So by using DNA sites, um, these criminologists actually found the Golden State Killer. And they said they helped build a family um, tree and from the genetic data, a profile of the balding Blue-eyed suspect came up for efforts uh, by Barbara Ray Venter, retired attorney, living in retirement in California, found him. How amazing is that to be using that? So they've used science to catch a lot of these people. And at time and time again, you're going to see um, there has been a decline since the 1980s in the number of identified serial killers. And he, um, the, the best database of serial killers was developed by Mike Amont, emeritus uh, professor at Radford University in Virginia, says there's a clear downward trend, but to urge caution, because even though it seems like there's a decline in number of serial killers that they can identify, 
there could be thousands of serial killers that we don't know about. And for some reason, we're not identifying today as well as we did in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, Here's my thought on it, is that there are tools that people can use in communities. So if someone is a serial killer, they may work together. They may um, read about crime and having the internet and having tools where they can go, oh, I know how to avoid this. I know how to clean up after murder so people won't find it. And it's amazing to me, like I live in Minnesota and that you hear stories all the time of them finding bodies. Who are these people? Where did they come from? Were they killed? Were they they obviously left in the middle of nowhere? Hopefully that someone would find them. But there was one, um, I know of a gas station over by um, Interstate 90 in Albert Lee. And there was a dead body laying not far from the parking lot, right off the road. And it was laying there for years. And they finally found it. And they were trying to figure out who this person is. Years. So you think of all these missing people. And like, are they all dead? Are they all missing? Are there people that are never reported missing? There are children that are kidnapped. There are people that do terrible things. And they're victims all the time. So do we live in a time that it's actually easier for someone to be a serial killer? It's very possible. But are they doing it in a way to get attention like they did in the 80s? No, it doesn't seem like that to me. Um Are we living in a society of strangers? It seems like we are closer than ever with our internet and constantly talking to each other. But also, there's distance in that. That we are more lonely than we've ever been. So it it just seems to me that um, there are declines. I wonder if more people um, being caught will dissuade serial killers. Or at least um, to take less big risks. You know, whereas... In the past, people would break into a house and kill a bunch of nurses, and it would be something very surprising. But nowadays, there's uh, security and video footage all over the place. You'd have to think about how would you get something even today. It's very different. So there are, they said that um, there's a stereotype of, uh, you know, how we talked about Hannibal so smart and outwitting law enforcement but there's also a cluster of killers with average to low intelligence and sometimes they've just been very lucky so it just depends on who the person is and the more evidence that they can hold on to and test later and have new technology that can find more evidence in it people are going to be found out we're going to find a lot of old people murderers that it comes out eventually that these unsolved crimes are solved. It's very interesting to me to see how that could be. So is that something that um, we'll see more of? I don't know. Um, There are people that um, seem like the nicest people that don't look scary. Um, I I feel like you, you do have to go with your gut. And are there tons of serial killers out there right now? Maybe. Maybe not near you, but there are bad people everywhere. And you should always be careful. Um, 
one of the things that they talk about in an, another article I saw in the Atlantic about modern life making it easier for serial killers to thrive. Um, I mean, we live in a world where they take your garbage away, right? Like, you know, like you can read a mystery novel and learn pretty much lots of ways to get around it. Um, the trick is, you know, people uh, doing something unexpected around someone they are not even ever close to and then leaving the state. And that makes it very hard to narrow down if you have no, if you didn't know the person. Whereas I've heard of a local case where it seems pretty obvious that there's a person who murdered his girlfriend or wife, I think it is his wife, and left the country fled, but they have no body, they have no proof, and there's no way to know. And that's that's the thing. They're kind of they they have a pretty good idea that this person might be the one who killed this woman. But there's no way. There's no way to dig into where she could be. Um, there's people that have uh, theories that I've heard. And so, you know, even locally, it's just amazing to me that there there are murders. I mean, I, we lived in a small town in Wasika for a little while, and there was a little girl that was killed in her house. And there was a family not far away from there that was killed by someone who was an intruder. And you just think, that's pretty close. And it's it's enough to terrify people. So it's no wonder that we are so easily swayed by, you know, ooh, new technology tools to protect us. But I'm going to tell you that if somebody is really keen on doing, you know, being a serial killer, murdering, um, way, they, they can just read. They can go on the internet. They'll figure out ways around it. And that's um, not not very um, reassuring, I know, but I think you should know that um, there are not that many people out there who do it. It's just sometimes being in the wrong place, like in a robbery, you you are going to run into it. So 2% of murderers are com- committed by serial offenders, according to this, he believes. Um, Thomas Hargrove, the founder of Murder Accountability Projects. That, uh, it's a nonprofit that compiles data on homicide. Um, examine how many unsolved murders are linked by DNA evidence. So there might be uh, repeat offenders that um, about 2,100 unidentified serial killers. They believe they're running out there today. So whereas I had read another article that said they thought there was only about 30. So... 30 compared to 2,000, that's a, that's a pretty big difference. Um, and that's serial killers, not just someone who maybe murders once or twice in their life. Um, people who do it often. Um, and then another person in the FBI, um, retired police, no, a retired police detective, author of 12 books on murder, Michael Arntfield, thinks that the number might actually be more like 3,000 or 4,000. That's a lot of people out there committing multiple murders. So why aren't more of them getting caught, right? Um, There's a person named Samuel Little. He wasn't a household name. Yet the California inmate confessed a death toll across 14 states, four decades, and appears triple Ted Bundy's. Since 2012, police have linked him to at least 60 homicides. 
and he claims to have committed 33 more. So right around 93. According to our field, killers like Little have benefited from falling clearance rates, which he in turn attributes to a handful of factors. Increased expertise. Killers have studied other murderers' mistakes and how to fool cops by planning false evidence, etc. Um, constrained resources, thanks to their stagnant salaries. Detectives in some areas may be less qualified than their predecessors. Growing social isolation, which makes potential victims more vulnerable. Greater geographic mobility, which makes dots harder to connect. And one of the things I was thinking about, we don't have a lot of time left, was that, you know, people do things like Tinder and they swipe left, swipe left, swipe right, you know, and, and you know, you have random sex with people, there's always going to be a chance that someone is going to take advantage and use that um, to catch someone. Um, or they could tail someone that they know goes on dates and um, if things don't work out, jump that person you know there's there's a lot of tools that people can use and are they being abused so one last thing i wanted to mention you know i didn't you know i i i like watching shows about crime and understanding and the science behind solving it i think it's fascinating but a lot of times they talk about how only men do it and that's that's a stereotype i found a really good article that um, was in a magazine called Quartz Online, QZ.com. They talk about the differences between male and female serial killers. And they said that 39% of female serial killers worked in healthcare. That's interesting. They um, used more methods like poison to murder. And um, they usually know the people in some way. Um, that there's uh, They're more educated than a lot of the male serial killers. Um, 80% of the women serial killers know their victims. Um, gathering is more figurative. Um, 72% killed at least one person in their care. A lot of them have killed their own children. So they're, they, they like to do things that are less violent. Um, whereas men target strangers, 85%, only 14% of women. Um, related to the victim, 90, only 9% of the males. So they have a sense of loyalty and 58% of the women um, serial killers killed uh, were related to the victim. Um, 64% of the or 65% of the men stalked a victim, where it's only 3%. Um, motive financial only 16% for men, 51% for women, which makes more sense because women had less money. Um, motive sexual 75% of male killers, only 7% of women. Um, killed victims outside of the birthplace, so like away from the town that they lived in. So 67% of men killed uh, outside of their hometown, whereas 25% for the women. Nickname shows brutality, 78%, and only 53%. So I think there's more sympathy for female serial killers, that they think something happened to them. Um, And women... Kill men and female, you know, men and women um, equally. They don't really discriminate, but they often will kill for financial gain. Um, they said that there's differences in the killings. And women, um, while men can procreate nearly endlessly, women have limited supply of eggs. Um, 
So there's maybe more of a hunting for men is sort of our primal way we come from and where women are gatherers. So we want money, we want to gather things to make our own home better. Um, they thought poison because they weren't as strong. So I think it's interesting to see that, yes, there are women that are serial killers, but it's evolutionary differences. And so you may not see as um, much said about female serial killers because they're more subtle. So there you have it. That will give you some nightmares, won't it? Yes, Halloween's coming up. I hope you have lots of fun things planned. It's coming up in another week and a half, and... I have a bunch of different costumes I'm thinking about. So I hope that you learned a little bit about serial killers today. It's very interesting. There's so many shows right now that talk about it. I think it's the du jour of horror right now. So um, if there's any shows that you're really into that you think I should be watching, send, send me a link on Facebook. I'm always interested in watching more. I'll probably be breezing through. Uh, Mindhunter pretty soon in the next couple weeks so give me something and I'm kind of hoping that Hannibal comes back because I love that show and I've heard rumors that they're looking at a movie oh she's talking to me so I hope you have a great week and um, stay spooky and I will see you next Monday there's some news that's coming up it's going to be a surprise but um, I will share it to you next week and we will all celebrate. So um, thinking about you and I will talk to you next week. Have a great week, kids. You really, I think that we're going to have like best weeks ever. So later. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC.